is an Odyssey original. This is a special edition of KNX In-Depth, the January 6th insurrection and the future of democracy in America. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, it was two years ago, the U.S. Capitol under siege, insurrectionists storming the building, sending members of Congress running, barricading themselves into their offices, and others secure parts of the building. The ramifications are clearly still being felt today, and so we are going to spend a good portion, actually most of this program, talking about that. Later in the show, we are going to be joined by historian Douglas Brinkley to uh, talk about the events of that day. But before we get to January 6th, there's major breaking news in the medical world. The FDA approving a new Alzheimer's drug that might, might slow the pace of cognitive decline early in the disease. But it does come with risks. With us now is April Thames, director of the UCLA Social Neuroscience and Health Psychology Lab. She's also a past Alzheimer's Association board member. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year. Same to you. Tell us what this drug is, and it is controversial. Why? Well, this drug is lecanemab, which is an antibody that's supposed to reduce amyloid in the brain, and that's what has been thought to be, you know, the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And so what's actually really exciting about this new drug, as opposed to to Agihelm, which came out earlier in 2021, but although it reduced amyloid, it did not show a cognitive benefit, whereas this drug does. And in in the clinical trials, there's been a reduction of cognitive decline for about about 27% reduction, which is is pretty exciting. And very quickly, we talk about the risk. What are the the, uh, risks that people need to be warned about, even though it's not going to be on market for a while, but but, uh, it's risky? Some of the risks that have been shown in the clinical trials relate to brain swelling, some uh, microvascular bleeds, and this has actually been shown in the other sort of monoclonal antibody studies that have been, uh, or the other drugs that have been trying to reduce amyloid. So it has similar risk um, that have been shown in other trials. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, April uh, Teams doctor, uh, director, I should say, of the UCLA Social Neuroscience and Health Psychology Lab, also past Alzheimer's Association board member. But now we're going to move on to the uh, two-year anniversary of January 6th. We're going to be joined a little bit later by Sherman Oaks Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman. He's the first member of Congress that we talked to on KNX two years ago today. We also have with us now uh, Victoria Bassetti, who's senior advisor for States United Democracy Center and author of Electoral Dysfunction, a survival manual for American voters, and also attorney and former federal prosecutor Gene Rossi. He's currently representing someone charged in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Gene, let me start with with you, Uh, since you're kind of close to the situation, obviously representing somebody who is connected with the insurrection. What do you think the legacy of that event two years ago is? Hearing in my case uh, uh, with the judge on January 6th, so that didn't uh, fail to impress everybody on the call. But what does January 6th mean, the investigation, what happened? 
Uh, I think when you read history books 50, 100, 150 years from now, uh, it is uh, going to be a seminal moment in our country's history for one reason. It's the first time a defeated president, and he was soundly defeated legally and legitimately, that a defeated president did not uh, agree to a peaceful and smooth transition of power. And you could go back to the transition committee of Biden. They were treated like um, second-class citizens. You can go to what happened on January 6th. You can go to how President Trump didn't even show up for the inauguration of Joseph Biden on January 20th. It is going to be not just a chapter in a history book. It could be a whole book. Uh, that's the significance of it. Okay, Gene Rossi, you're going to stay with us uh, for the rest of the half hour. We're going to get to Victoria Vassetti in a minute. We are now joined by Sherman Oaks Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Good to be with you. Uh, what's happening uh, now in the House of Representatives, its effort to try thus far unsuccessfully to get a Speaker of the House, is that one of the, the ramifications of what happened on the 6th of January two years ago? Well, uh, the intense partisanship uh, has been growing, and of course that went on steroids when, when Trump uh, came here. Uh, what's amazing is how little influence Trump has. He has endorsed Kevin McCarthy, and he couldn't deliver a single vote, um, which might be, a, in a way, a healthy thing, because I think Trump is a, a bad influence on American politics. Uh, it's perhaps good for my party uh, when he symbolizes the Republican Party or becomes its nominee, but it's it's bad for the country. Victoria, uh, I keep thinking about what lessons, if any, this country has learned over the past two years. Yes, uh, many people have been uh, arrested, uh, many charged, some tried, some convicted. But what have we actually learned, do you think? Well, I think we're, we're still learning. Um, there's, there's no kind of one clear lesson, you know. And, and I think the recent elections that were concluded do demonstrate that for a very large portion of the American population, what we've learned is how important the administration of free and fair elections are and how important it is to have, you know, dispassionate or independent people who are counting the votes and declaring the winners. You know, the, the, um, the, the most recent election demonstrated that a very clear majority of the American public were not going to vote for election deniers and were not going to vote for people who threatened the kind of the fundamental way that our democracy is administered. I think that's a pretty clear and direct lesson that came out of uh, the 2020 election and January 6th. But many of the other lessons that we have to learn about hyperpartisanship, about polarization, about how we administer our democracy are still evolving. We're still learning a lot of lessons. I want to uh, go back to uh, Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman uh, again and ask you, uh, 
we're rightly focused on the the crimes of what happened on January 6th, probably one of the most uh, documented crimes in American history because it, it unfolded right in front of us on our uh, TV sets. And we're focused on the violence of that and the people responsible for carrying out the violence. But, of course, we're also looking at uh, who instigated the violence, who incited the violence, who, who maybe knew about this and maybe even kind of planned for something to happen that day. But then there's the ongoing uh, coup attempt that uh, some people are very concerned about of, of uh, taking advantage of these loopholes that we have in our laws. And I know recently Congress has closed some of those loopholes, but I'm sure you think that there are still plenty of loopholes to remain. And uh, the biggest of which some people believe is the Electoral College itself. What changes would you like to see to make sure that nothing could even begin to instigate another January 6th? Well, we're going to probably have to live with the Electoral College, and Democrats have lost the presidency twice this century because of the Electoral College. It's unfair, but it has has uh, tw- the t- two times that it's uh, deprived the uh, party that got the majority of the votes cast the presidency. It's helped Republicans. They've noticed, and Republicans are not about to uh, assist in changing it. Um, the Electoral Count Act, which we were able to pass last month, is very important because our democracy in some ways was hit by a thin string uh, by a hair, and that was the hair of uh, of Mike Pence. He was under tremendous pressure to take this view uh, that he could uh, whip out of his uh, pocket uh, the electoral votes of Arizona differing from the ones that state officials had certified. And had he done that, um, uh, January 6th would have been a, a much uh, a, a much worse day. So uh, we, we have now identified the fact that while the Constitution says the vice president needs to participate, that participation is only ministerial. Gene Rossi, uh, we've gone just about 20 minutes and one name has not come up. You know what name that is. Gene? Is he there? Gene, are you with us? Oh, oh can you hear me now? Yeah, yes. now there you go. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. so I don't know if you're the question, but I said that we've gone now almost 20 minutes, and there's one name that hasn't come up yet. Well, <laughs> well, I... I Maybe I'll give it to you. Donald J. Trump. Is that ah, the guy? Ah, there we go. <laughs> that guy. Oh, that guy. I, 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 think, I think I mentioned him in my first comment. Oh, did you? Oh. Did you mention Donald Trump? Okay. We yeah, went I by. mentioned how, how Trump had passing. no influence on the speakership fight. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Uh, but at least in terms of, the, of, of, of talking about the January 6th insurrection and uh, how it was planned and how it was carried out, I, I don't think we actually discussed Mr. Trump in that in that light. Uh, where is he fitting into all this legacy? Well, let me tell you this. Uh, Jack Smith, who finally flew to the United States after he recovered from his bicycle accident, uh, he is one tough hombre. He is an aggressive prosecutor. He was head of the elite public integrity section of the Justice Department. So he went after corrupt politicians. And Congressman Brad Sherman is the antithesis of a corrupt politician. Uh, but he went after corrupt politicians, including Governor Bob McDonald and others. So if I were Donald Trump, I would be waking up every morning and thinking about him before I go to bed because I, I, I have a sense, I have a sense 
working for the Department of Justice almost 30 years that were, were approaching that Rubicon where the Department of Justice, in the guise of Mr. Smith, uh, is making a decision on whether to indict the President of the United States. And the four, uh, the referrals from the J6 committee, uh, that's going to carry a lot of weight. It's not binding on the Justice Department, but they sent over a tranche of over a thousand interviews, God knows how many documents and texts, and they made a referral. Now, they don't have to follow that referral, but I got to tell you this. Uh, I worked at Maine Justice. I worked there, and I, I know how they think. And, and just looking at the tea leaves, tossiography, I can tell you this, that Donald Trump probably has a 70%, maybe higher chance of having his name in a caption that is an indictment. Um, I could be wrong. But that's my feeling. Now, the indictment may not occur till maybe October of this year. I don't think that Donald Trump will be indicted in 2024 because of the election. Uh, but I do think there's a chance you could see an indictment returned with his name on it in 2023, based right. on my 30 years. All right. Thank and, you and so much. Could, uh, go ahead. Go uh, ahead quickly. You know, I was just going to jump in and sort of add a little bit of uh, additional uh, color to, to what Jean just said, which is that the, the January 6th uh, committee report really honed in on three areas where Trump explicitly acted and did things quite directly related to what culminated in January 6th. That was his direct involvement in the Department of Justice in attempting to overturn the election, his direct involvement in soliciting and creating the fake electors, and then his direct and explicit knowledge of the incredible danger of an armed crowd that he had gathered on January 6th. More than any other report, they put specific they put his fingerprints directly on what happened okay we're going to leave that there when we come back i want to ask congressman sherman whether or not if the president former president is indicted would that actually be good or bad for the country you're listening to a special edition of candex in depth the january 6th insurrection and a little bit later, we're going to be talking with a noted historian and author Douglas Brinkley in the last half hour of the show. With us still now is Attorney Gene Rossi. We also have Victoria Bassetti, who's a senior advisor for States United Democracy Center. And I want to now ask Congressman Brad Sherman the question I posed before the break. We are such a polarized country, and that's an understatement, that... Half the country would probably be thrilled if Mr. Trump were to be indicted, and a large portion, maybe not half, but a large portion of the country would be very upset, and that is also probably an understatement. How do we navigate around all that? Well, I don't know if it's critical to the country that Donald Trump go to jail, but it is absolutely critical that he, don't go to, that he doesn't go to the White House. I think his star is fading uh, I think if he were indicted in October 2023, people at justice could convince themselves that that was before the election. But as a you know, as, as, as somebody who's run a lot of elections, they, by, by October it's it's election season, and uh, this would this would make him a martyr among those who 
who don't hate him. And uh, I I think that any if any Republican is elected, uh, he will be uh, he'll be pardoned uh, and, uh, in 2025. I just want to keep him out of the White House. Uh, I am, I'm I mean the just the Justice Department has to do justice, but in terms of what's good for the country. I don't know whether making him a martyr among his his supporters is good, and it depends a little bit on the quality of the indictment. How does it really convince the country that this has to be done, that these violations were severe? There are two kinds of things he could be indicted for. First are the pedestrian crimes, uh, the business crimes that he's committed, uh, and uh, whether it's, uh, you know, dealing with his taxes or dealing with uh, lying to his lenders. The problem there is they are pedestrian crimes. Uh, do you really want to indict a former president of the United States for doing something that, well, any other businessman did that, we've, we would indict them. But this is, uh, it, it's not of over. And then the other are the constitutional crimes. And there, uh, those are statutes that haven't been applied in the past and that, You've got to convince people uh, that this is constitutional, not political. And so, uh, I think uh, I, I think an indictment could go either way. It could strengthen our democracy, uh, or it could strengthen Donald Trump. All right, I have a question for uh, Victoria Bassetti. Uh, uh, used to be the nuclear scientists would. Uh, get together and come up with a report every year or so and say that the clock, we are three minutes away from nuclear midnight. Uh, how far away from democracy midnight are we in your view in the United States? Uh, that is a very, very tough question to answer. I, I'm going to say seven minutes. Uh, I, I, that's sort of just a, 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 a kind of a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to it. I, I, um, I feel like we, uh, after the last election, like I said, when so many Americans kind of voted in favor of democracy, that we we really we really helped ourselves there. Um, but uh, seven is a little too close for comfort. We've still got, as I say, a lot of people who are really um, uh, uh, hyperpartisan. They're, mm-hmm. they're polarized. They're activated angry, armed, very dangerous, and they're still there, um, and they're still getting whipped up. So that is definitely okay. a very a very frightening place that we find ourselves in. Okay, as we wrap up this segment very uh, quickly to, to Rob's question, uh, first Gene and then and lastly the Congressman, uh, Victoria says seven minutes uh, to uh, midnight in terms of our democracy. Uh, what time frame do you put it at? Oh, I, I'm I'm a Pollyanna. I think I think our democracy is actually in a pretty good place right now. And the reason I say that is the last election told me that the American people, when push comes to shove, and they want either election deniers or people who are going to uh, follow the rule of law, uh, they they uh, they go with the latter. Okay, stop. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you there because I want to get the congressman in for the last sure, uh, last word, and sure. then we have to move on. Congressman Sherman, I think uh, roughly one or two percent uh, of the population would have voted Republican and voted Democrat because of the election denial, and we're so closely balanced that that's important. I uh, I wish it 
that an awful lot more of Americans would be willing to cross party lines if their party, either of the parties, uh, was uh, was in a, uh, trying to undermine democracy. I think our institutions are are strong, uh, and uh, I I'd say we're we're not uh, seven minutes uh, away from midnight. But um, I think that what I think the abortion decision was far more important than the uh, election denial as to right. why we did better than expected. Thank you very much. Uh, our uh, guest on this uh, portion of In-Death today talked about January 6th. Uh, Attorney uh, Gene Rossi, former federal prosecutor, and also Victoria Bassetti, senior advisor for States United Democracy Center, and Congressman Brad Sherman. You're listening to a special edition of KNX In-Depth, January 6th Insurrection, the Future of Democracy in America with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We are joined now by esteemed historian and author Douglas Brinkley. Uh, you no doubt have seen him on TV, probably read some of his books, ranging from the Cold War to Walter Cronkite to Hurricane Katrina. He's now out with a new book, uh, which we are going to get to. It explores the modern environmental movement and the impact U.S. presidents have had on it, specifically three of them. The book is called Silent Spring Revolution, John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, and we will get to the book, uh, but I we've been spending a lot of time on this program the past uh, 35 minutes or so talking about uh, everything from January 6th to the uh, really shameful spectacle going on in the uh, House of Representatives the past few days. As a historian, can you put all of this in perspective? And I know that's a tall uh, order, but uh, it seems that that what's been happening in the House is is clearly connected in in some way, at least philosophically connected, to what happened on January 6th two years ago, if you agree with that. Uh, How do you view it as an historian? Well, there used to be, really from Franklin D. Roosevelt all the way to Ronald Reagan in 1980, a long uh, amount of time, um, there was a belief that the federal government was your friend, that the U.S. government was providing Social Security under FDR or the Manhattan Project and won the war, that Harry Truman was, you know, created the CIA and Joint Chiefs of Staff and Air Force, and I can go on and on. You know, Eisenhower, the federal government built the Interstate Highway Project and the St. Lawrence Seaway. I created NASA. John F. Kennedy said, we're going to put a man to the moon by the end of the decade and bring him back alive. And in bipartisan fashion, people folded in with with NASA and with the federal government. Lyndon Johnson did Medicaid and Medicare and NPR and Wild and Scenic Rivers and on and on on federal programs. Uh, but starting really in Jimmy Carter created Department of Energy and FEMA and the like. Nixon did endangered species and clean air and water. There was this bipartisan cast of things. But in 1980, starting with Reagan, there was a fear that the federal government is not your friend, that you're being ripped off. You're, uh, there's the tax structure's not fair. And then NAFTA's taking jobs uh, away from the United States for Mexico. And this is built to a crescendo uh, when Donald Trump was elected in this anti-federal government movement, this kind of libertarianism built within the Republican Party um, is is just keeps manifesting itself in ugly ways on January 6th. Um, it will always be remembered for the seize of the Capitol. And now you're looking at an inability to even 
pick a Speaker of the House because a segment of the Republican Party believes the federal government is the enemy, not their friend. And, you know, it's interesting that you put it in that perspective because there are voices growing louder and louder. And they used to be the far, far, far fringe. And now they're just kind of the fringe. And they're openly saying that elections aren't working for us. So we need to install our people. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. They say we need to install our people and then not mess with elections ever again. And people openly saying this. And what's disturbing is not that I think a a majority of Americans will ever agree with that view, but a sizable number of them are. Is that a harbinger? of bad things to come as the lead-up was in the 1840s and 50s up to the Civil War? Oh, it's a good question. It's a problem, a big one, but I think we'll we'll muddle our way through this. I mean, it's part of the birth of conspiracy theorists going big time, um, the meaning the birth of the uh, World Wide Web, the Internet, um, social media has allowed bad actors to shop uh, false stories and extremist philosophies to much greater numbers than ever before. And so, you know, we're a country that we still have people that don't believe Neil Armstrong went to the moon, or they feel that the collapse of the World Trade Center was a plot uh, hatched by the federal government. When we, when you have 20% of the Americans or more thinking in these terms, that's deeply problematic. But as you can see, there's a cost for it. I mean, Joe Biden was not an inspiring candidate. He's sort of a centrist Democrat, um, never gives great speeches, but uh, he seemed like adult, normal leadership compared to what the GOP is offering. And I think while as long as the shadow of Donald Trump looms large, uh, uh, people like Roger Stone and others, you know, are going to try to um, create a distrust of the federal government. And this is is um, something we're just going to have to be on watch all the time. But I believe our democracy will pull through this. I believe, for example, Kevin McCarthy will probably eventually pull this out. It's going to be gridlock two years because we're going to be in an election mode. Um, but our, our United States was built on strong foundations. And I believe in the end, we will get through this sort of shock and awe period of of the hijacking of American policy by conspiracy theorists and right-wing activists who have used social media uh, for to do a lot of, um, you know, um, ugly and grim things on the our public um, sphere. All right, we're talking with historian and author Douglas Brinkley. When we come back, we're going to talk about his new book, Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. You're listening to KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. And we are back with historian and author Douglas Brinkley. His new book, Silent Spring Revolution, I've just now abbreviated it. It's a long title, but it's an interesting one, and we're going to talk to him about that. It details the rise of the modern environmental movement and the role certain presidents have played in it. And there are some names in the title that maybe some people would be surprised or lumped together. Why? Well, you know, one of the things that um, I try to look at is there, there, we've had waves of environmental movements in modern American history. The first wave was Theodore Roosevelt's era as president when he was in 1901 to 1909, and it's all the national parks and the like. 
The second wave was FDR and the Civilian Conservation Corps during the New Deal, where we planted nearly 3 billion trees across America and, and also saved all sorts of national parks like the Channel Islands and Southern California, uh, Joshua Tree uh, National Parks, FDR era. The third wave wasn't about a Roosevelt. It really began in 1945, a protest of the nuclear testing of bombs in Nevada desert. It started being shown that fallout was affecting human beings. Also DDT and pesticides that were being sprayed on agriculture were proven to be harmful to human beings. And so by the time John F. Kennedy was president, our country was ripe. We were poised for an environmental movement. And that was brought home when Rachel Carson published her book, Silent Spring, warning about human society destroying the natural world. Uh, in the 1960s, protests grew and politicians listened to the people. We got a Clean Air Act and Clean Water Acts. By 1970, we had Earth Day with millions of Americans and, and people really all over the world talking about saving planet Earth from ecological ruin. And, you know, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson played a role in this, and also Richard Nixon and his assistant, John Ehrlichman. And in fact, uh, this coming Tuesday, um, I'm going to be speaking at the Nixon Presidential Library of why did Nixon save the Endangered Species Act? And why did Nixon do things, you know, to um, um, expand the National Park Service? And, and in the end, all of this was done because the people were demanding it. it was an amazing environmental movement we had in the what I call the long 60s, 1960 to 1973. How did it, how did this change? Because you talk about some uh, Republicans and you mentioned this earlier that uh, it used to be Republicans were behind these uh, ideas that were bipartisan, preserving our resources, uh, not polluting the air so that we can uh, grow up healthier. And these used to be bipartisan ideas. But then something changed, because if you look at the issues today, if you talk about anything having to do with the environment, then you naturally bring in uh, climate change. All of a sudden, that becomes the high politicized issue between the right and the left. Uh, the left is firmly on this side of fighting climate change, while the right and conservatives and Republicans are definitely against it. How did that split happen? Well, in, during the Nixon years, I mean, Nixon uh, had to combat things like, like the Santa Barbara oil spill of 1969 and the Cuyahoga River catching fire in Ohio. And he did the right thing, Nixon. It's hard to believe because he's seen as a scoundrel by many people. But on the environment, they woke up and said, we've got to do stuff. And Nixon is the one who established the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, the EPA. Uh, and under William Ruckelshaus, its first head, they became law enforcement. They were busting polluters left and right. Things changed when Nixon left. Um, Nixon got trapped into Watergate. We also had the Arab oil embargo of 1973. The last big act I write about, Endangered Species Act, which saved the California condor and walrus and polar bear and the alligator, uh, whooping cranes, on and on. That passed the Senate um, 92 to nothing, the Progressive Endangered Species Act. But by 74, there was a backlash, Nixon was gone, and the new Republican Party um, was listening more to the oil and gas, the extraction industries, who created a counter-revolution to people like Rachel Carson and Ralph Nader and the like. 
And that, that meant the birth of the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, uh, Koch Brothers, Scafies Organization, the, the um, you know, Federalist Society. And their goal was to say stop environmental regulation because they saw that as socialistic. Uh, they were promoting unfettered capitalism, unregulated um, um, you know, corporate interest. And the split widened. And today you have an energy lobby, which is always at war with the environmental lobby instead of them working constructively and in sync. Well, and, and, and in point of fact, right, with, with climate change unabated and with the ramifications of it increasingly apparent, it seems like uh, all of those earlier efforts that you just, some of which you just articulated and are in your book, presumably, too, uh, were, you know, important certainly at the time, but were not enough. Well, that's right. Uh, they did a lot. And that's what I wanted to claim as a historian. Look at what we did back then, uh, how we did pass. You know, you couldn't breathe in Los Angeles. It was so polluted, the air. I mean, Pasadena, the smog was just horrendous. And now we're seeing California again taking the lead um, by 2035 on not selling automobiles fueled by gasoline in the state. I believe, and I write in the book, that California was where the 60s and 70s environmental movement really emanated. That in Washington's people from Washington and Oregon, Pacific Coast, and they're going to have to lead again. It's going to come from a consumer innovation people's movement that says we don't want to destroy planet Earth and climate change is doing that. And so, um, you know, my book is a, a wake up call in hopes that people that are engaged today in environmental movement in one way or another or alternative energy world uh, will read the book and get learn how they could uh, perhaps use tools and, and things that they did in the 60s and 70s from songs like Marvin Gaye, Mercy Me, The Economy to Andy Warhol, Marketing Endangered Species um, Art and Robert Rauschenberg, the great painter doing the first Earth Day painting and books by people like Rachel Carson and Ralph Nader and Des uh, Edward Abbey. Uh, these that there'll be a way to start a mass movement. That's when the politicians will listen when the people demand the change. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Douglas uh, Brinkley, a store and also uh, with a new book called Silent Spring Revolution. That's going to do it for today's edition of uh, KNX In-Depth. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday with more.